On today's episode, we suck blood, get our bulbs wet, and we want more money. All that and more coming up. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Our Science. I'm your host, Alan Collier, and I'm joined today by Ian Black. Hello. And Sarah Vokey. Good afternoon. If you haven't heard the podcast before, this is a great way to keep up to date with what's going on in science because we're going to take the top three papers of the last two weeks and break them down for you, really get our nails dirty, dig in there, just rip them up, tear them apart, various things. That was so visceral. My bulbs are already wet. Ew. I hate this episode already. (laughs) We recommend that you listen to this podcast while your bulbs are as wet as possible. Oh. (laughs) Warning, first two rows may get wet. (laughs) If you're listening, you are in fact in the splash zone. Our first paper this episode comes from BBC News. Malaria completely stopped by microbe. Scientists have discovered a microbe that completely protects mosquitoes from being infected with malaria. Completely stopped, everyone. Malaria is done. Hashtag cancel malaria. In the defense of this paper... Always a good start. It, it's a misleading title when they say completely stopped. They, they, they do mean it has been completely stopped within the system of a like, single mosquito. They don't mean completely stopped in the world. But I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear Sarah's, Sarah's take first. <laughs> That's an unusual thing to do on this podcast, but sure, we can go with it. I found it a really interesting article. All right, good talk. Ian, what else did you <laughs> I mean, no, Sarah's right. It's interesting. It's um, concise, which I always appreciate in yes. articles like this. It's got, it uses, it uses um, headers. It does. Yeah. It headers the hell out of this. Which is great because, you know, you get to, you, you can skip to the area that you're interested in and just read about that if you want. Okay, so let's, let's talk about what they're actually doing. Yep. They have found mosquitoes that have a microbe inside of them that is rendering them immune to malaria, blocks malaria. It's called, oh boy. I was going to say. Microsporidia MB. Oh no, that's incorrect. Nope, Microsporidia. It's called Microsporidia MB. I believe that's correct. Yes. This is our science test the theory of what happens if you make an illiterate idiot be your host. <laughs> I was going to say, Alan, I'm not going to lie to you. I've Since I read this paper, I have been looking forward to the moment where you had to say microsporidia. Microsporidia is right, and that only took two takes, I'll have you know. <laughs> so these, this microbe lives in certain mosquitoes, and mosquitoes with this microbe do not get malaria. And malaria is then normally transferred from mosquitoes to humans. So if you can cure the malaria in the mosquitoes, you don't have to worry about being passed to humans. So there's a couple of things I think are really cool. First of all, the fact that it's like a fungus that's like growing in the mosquito. Yeah. And and any mosquito with this fungus does cannot get or, or doesn't seem to be able to get malaria. And they don't know why yet, I don't believe. Uh, not so far as I could like tell. They've got, they've, got, they've got hypotheses, but they don't have anything that's definitive yet. Yeah. They don't, in a weird way, they don't necessarily care as long as it does. Like, they, they obviously, they want to know why it doesn't, but as long as it does, that's the priority. I think that's going to be backburnered because they're going to f- focus more on, okay, does, first of all, does this microbe have any other negative, any unknown negative effects on the mosquito population? Because if they can infect the vast majority of mosquitoes with this microbe, which is a naturally occurring microbe anyway, then it's going to stop the spread of malaria but not damage the mosquito population, which I know everyone was really concerned about that we might have fewer mosquitoes. 
It's not so much that it harms the mosquito population as does it harm the rest of the ecosystem around the yes. mosquitoes is a potential concern. I, I do think it's super cool that they have found a microbe that is naturally occurring. And what did they say? 5%? I, I appreciate that they use the phrase, these approaches are relatively uncontroversial. Just because something is naturally occurring doesn't mean that it's perfect doesn't mean that just because it's natural it's like well there's no side effects everything's fine and lovely but it does imply that as long as this hasn't just popped up in the last like week that nature has kind of been testing it itself because this microbe has been around for probably a long time and we haven't seen any huge like we just now discovered it so it doesn't have any huge negative side effects on the ecosystem so it's more likely that it's going to be okay but it's still to be kept in mind that it's only in a very small percentage of the ecosystem. Yes. Yeah. So that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case. They still have to kind of look into it. Oh, absolutely. But it's certainly very promising. It does. It means that the ecosystem hasn't just collapsed immediately that's with the presence good. of this micro, which is a good start. And the other thing I, I cannot get over, because you see this so rarely in a paper like this, where the data, and this is a quote, the data we have so far suggests it is a 100% blockage. It's so rare that you see just... A, a simple solution, a relatively simple solution like this, like a single thing causing such a dramatic uh, impact on... Does it say if it, if it if the fungi specifically kills the malaria in the mosquito, or does it prevent the malaria from spreading? I believe they can't be infected with it. I believe okay. that they can't be infected. Yeah, I believe so... that it's like the malaria does not exist in it. <laughs> yes. There is no malaria in Bossing Say. This is part of they don't know for sure why it's stopping malaria, so... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't know because they don't know. Yep. Um, it could be priming their immune systems. It could be having an effect on their metabolism, making... But it, it appears to be lifelong, so it's a, it's a long-term solution. It's yes. not like you got to keep getting... Well, you, yeah. you don't have to keep injecting it. Lifelong, the lifelong in the life of a mosquito. Lifelong for mosquitoes <laughs> is not very long. But still, I mean, you know, in the life of a mosquito, how many people could it infect with malaria? Like, at least two. Exactly. <laughs> well, you're not wrong. No. <laughs> it's it's rare to see something like 100% in science. Absolutely. I think that's why this title is so interesting because it's misleading but also supported by their evidence. M misleading in the fact that it's referring to the body of a mosquito. It's Yeah, it's technically accurate, but yes. it, it gives an impression. It, it, it forces a bit of a, um, an inference that is not accurate. Mm -hmm. It makes people read the headline and think, okay, we've now cured malaria. And this happens so many times when you hear a positive article like this, positive research like this. Everyone just assumes like, okay, well, now it's done. No, there's so many steps that have to be taken between this and it actually putting a dent in malaria cases worldwide. And the one of the biggest issues with that is that you need to have about 40% of mosquitoes in a region infected with this microbe in order to make a significant dent in malaria. That comes straight from the article. Yeah. Except they didn't just call it the microbe. I did because I don't want to pronounce it again. That's that's promising because like forty percent is a lot. Forty percent is a hell of a lot. It's a lot less. It's a lot less than more than forty percent. But I I th <laughs> that's I don't know true. If you realize this, guys. But forty percent is less than less than forty one percent. Researchers have estimated that that's less than forty one percent. But it's, I think it's more than you think. I did a little bit of side research on this too, and and there have been other things like this where. It's if you can get a blank amount of mosquitoes infected with something, then it might put a dent in it. But like 40% is a lot because mosquitoes are hard to pin down. 
And the the eco the actual the ecosystem with mosquitoes is is a bit of an unknown, so it's tough to figure out how best to do this. I think it would be super cool to see like the studies that would come out of this. Like if they did find that this was, you know, an appropriate malaria prevention treatment, I would love to see the weird mosquito population studies that came out of this of just like how do you transmit a microbe to forty percent of mosquitoes? I would just it- love to see that research. And again, Give me the weird science. If it's in five percent of the insects studied, then and if it's been around for a while, then like it's naturally it's only been in five percent. So you've got to like pump those numbers up. <laughs> pump it up. They do talk about potential ways of of increasing the number of infected mosquitoes. Uh, they could just throw spores on mass to infect mosquitoes, but there's probably some issues with there of just releasing spores on mass somewhere into the environment. I think that the concept of on mass spores is a little worrying. You gotta, you gotta be real <laughs> sure. Also, I, I learned that male mosquitoes don't bite. No, they don't. You didn't know that? Really? I, I, I don't know. I guess it had never come up in my life. I just, oh. I, I didn't think of like the gender of mosquito when it bit me. They're also, they're also, aren't they also like a little bit bigger than the females too? Uh, I'm not know. sure if they're bigger. Correct me if I'm wrong. I was told this as a child. Apparently male mosquitoes don't make a buzzing noise. Like that awful mosquito noise. That, that might sound. be completely bullshit. I don't know if they. I don't know if that's true. I'll. I will fact check that. If you're listening to this right now, it's because I fact checked this, and Sarah's an idiot, and that's totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I believe that female mosquitoes uh, they drink blood to like nourish the eggs. Yeah, that's the only thing that could have made blood sucking worse is that it nourishes eggs. <laughs> vampire vampire bats pee on you while they drink your blood because <laughs> they, their bladders can't hold the amount of blood they need for nutrition. That so they're just I drinking your blood and pissing on you. It's like well, that I knew. Some people are into that. We're not going to shame them. <laughs> um, so something that we that we kind of glossed over that I think is important to mention is that the uh, if it's in if the microbe is in the females, they will actually pass it on to their offspring. Yes, because it's in the gut and the genitalia, so it can be passed on via kinky mosquito sex or via birth. Is there any other kind? <laughs> this is the most uncomfortable episode. Also, does anybody have anything else to say? Because is there any other kinds of really good place to end this on the editing? <laughs> um, I do actually have one. I'm sorry. I do actually have one Damn other thing it. I wanted to mention that you can. You, you don't have to include it if you don't want to. But I'm just curious about, because it's something I don't think they really mention. Does this microbe function the same in every species of mosquito? I don't believe they do. I think they just say that it's uh, in 5% of mosquitoes that are around Lake Victoria and Kenya. That's what they're saying where the microbe is found. Yes. They're, I'm wondering, it's like, okay, but like there are mosquitoes in Kenya, there are mosquitoes in England, there are mosquitoes in Canada. Like they're not all one species. I'm pretty sure they're different species. I learned very recently that there are like upwards of 16 just in Northern Ontario alone. Yeah. So the way this article presents itself, you might interpret it as this microbe will work in all species of mosquito, but I don't see anything that actually shows that. No, I don't believe so either. I think that's probably part of that continual process of science that you never see, or never see, you very rarely see represented in science articles. We are recording this episode on a Sunday. I would have preferred to record this episode on a Saturday. Yeah, why didn't we record it yesterday? What was happening yesterday? There was something... That's a good question. Let's go to our foreign correspondent, <sighs> Sarah. Sarah, can we get an update on uh, on the situation over in Vancouver? Why 
must you laugh at my pain? Because it's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. Well, basically, if there's anybody who doesn't already follow our Twitter, you can see a great video of this, but uh, a raccoon decided that the best place to take a nap was in a tree right next to my apartment. And unfortunately, somewhere in that tree is probably a crow's nest, because for the period of approximately 14 hours, two crows screamed at that raccoon. Only 14 hours? That's weak. I know, right? I could have gone at least for, I could have gone for at least 15. <laughs> you know, from approximately 7 ah, in the morning ah. to 8 p.m. at night. It, yeah, that actually that was a very accurate rendition of what this hellscape was like. <laughs> so today we learned that raccoons sleep for about 14 hours. <laughs> Or crows are awake for about 14 hours, yeah. one or the other. The most impressive part, I think, was that the raccoon just gave no bothers. He was curled up all day, because I kept checking on him to make sure that, you know, the crows were actually, you know, cawing at something. Because if it turns out that there was no raccoon and the crows were just cawing, I think I would have actually experienced um, emotional, mental, and physical collapse. <sighs> But yeah, that raccoon out see, there. See, the comedy lies from her pain. <laughs> yeah. The sad thing is we didn't get to see the, the emotional and physical collapse. No. Really. <laughs> You're not allowed to have a breakdown until I'm there to witness it. So who is the asshole in this situation? Is it the raccoon? Or am I the asshole? Is it the raccoon for, for just continuing to sleep through the racket and not moving like a considerate neighbor? Is it the crows for realizing about three hours in that this was not working and maybe they should just stop <laughs> and the raccoon's not hurting anybody? Or is it Sarah because... I had to reschedule podcast time. Yeah. <laughs> the answer... <laughs> the answer may surprise you. <laughs> I'll put this poll on Twitter and we'll see what responses we get. Nine out of ten crows will keep yelling. Oh, she's counting crows now. <laughs> Me and Mr. Jones over here counting crows. I gotta give a shout out to my new favorite Twitter account, which is just I Hate yes. Crows. Yes. yes. They their account got created about a week ago as we record this. And within like seconds of me posting something about crows, they immediately liked the video of me uh hating crows. Their newest tweet is Five Crows on Vacation started the Peloponnesian War. <laughs> uh, I personally enjoy uh, I personally enjoy all of them, but especially crows have perfect hearing, but will pretend not to hear you. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's the raccoon. <laughs> Give a follow to at h8crows, hate crows. <laughs> Hashtag lovebirds hate crows. Hashtag the more you crow. <laughs> Our second paper of this episode comes from Science Magazine. Study finds intolerable bouts of extreme humidity and heat, which could threaten human survival, are on the rise across the world, suggesting that the worst-case scenario warnings about the consequences of global heating are already occurring. So two things. One, you're going to learn a lot about the term wet bulb temperature. <sighs> and two, intolerable is a bit of an understatement. It, yeah. Tolerable. Like fatal. <laughs> fatal might be uh, slightly more accurate. It's, it's, because, it's because they're uh, relying on, on the, the use of the word tolerance. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we begin, Ian, would you like to briefly let the world know what your relation to body temperature uh, research is? Well, um, I have a body, <laughs> like like many people. Incorrect. And as a consequence of that, that is fake. <laughs> that is fake as a news. As a, uh, 
Oh, hey, I'm Sarah. I would like to pass the mic over to Ian and then immediately cut him off a million times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every episode. It's not an episode without Ian being interrupted. <laughs> anyway, as I was saying, as a human being with a body and a consequence of that, a body temperature, uh, I, I am very interested in this topic. Also, additionally, that was a redundant statement. Um, I have a degree in studying temperature regulation in... Uh, Specifically, reptiles, but I do have quite a bit of background knowledge on um, warm-blooded animals, such as humans, as well. Worst dating profile ever. (laughs) (laughs) You say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also have some experience with warm bodies. (laughs) All right, Uh, so who wants to explain wet bulbs? Because I think they're fascinating, and I had... No idea what these were, and Ian just raised his hand on an I, audio I got podcast. This. I got so. this one. Go get him, Ian. So, so wet bulb temperature is essentially the temperature that is reached at in a room or in a in a chamber when you have a, a thermometer wrapped in a wet cloth. So, what it's measuring is how much does the evaporation of water from the cloth impact the temperature uh, of the thermometer or, or the temperature reading of the thermometer essentially how much like in a human for example that would be how much does sweating impact your heat loss from your skin so wet bulb temperature is like the lowest temperature you can reach because of evaporative heat loss that was a that was a delightful explanation of wet thank bulbs. you and and of course if uh the ambient temperature or the humidity of the room is too high then uh, your wet bulb temperature isn't going to drop as much as if your humidity was much lower so drier temperatures or, or drier uh, chambers or rooms or environments uh, have higher evaporative heat loss and therefore you can cool yourself off more uh, using eva- using um, evaporation. Right. And why this is important is because your inner body temperature is like a 37-ish, a little less than 37 degrees Celsius. Normally you have a very intricate, complex, but effective cooling system in your body. Like your body does a really nice job of cooling itself, but it requires the skin temperature... About 35 degrees Celsius or lower. Yeah. Yeah. In order to maintain this cooling system. If your skin temperature is hotter than that, which is essentially if the air temperature is higher than 35 degrees, the air temperature being the normal, as they call it, dry bulb temperature. Mm. Less exciting. Very less exciting. Nobody wants a dry bulb. Don't kink shame. (laughs) If you or someone you know is experiencing dry bulb, please call your doctor. You may be entitled to legal compensation. (laughs) (laughs) Have you or a dry bulb temperature ever been diagnosed with a loved one? <laughs> uh, if it ever gets a, if the if your skin temperature ever gets above thirty five degrees Celsius, the only way you really have of cooling yourself is sweat. You you gotta sweat in order to stay cool. If the wet bulb temperature is above thirty five degrees, then that means that your sweat is not gonna evaporate. You and it's are not in fact going to cool you. S O L. Yeah, you're in you're just in a bad spot. It would be intolerable. It essentially means, yeah, that the the humidity of the environment is so high that your evaporative heat loss is not lowering your body temperature or your skin temperature to uh, lower than 35 degrees Celsius. Potentially, it'll be higher than 35 degrees Celsius. And if that happens, that's uh, bad news bears. Um, <laughs> with should Do we want to bother converting this to Fahrenheit? Uh, we'll get into that. Okay. Don't you worry. Because it's not hard. <laughs> I mean, it's basically just a little under 100 degrees Fahrenheit, right? Mm-hmm. it's like 98 point something one thing one thing i do want to mention about this paper is that it is actually a like it's a 
scientific paper. Yes. Um, yes it, it is not written for a lay audience at no. all. This is very no. much for people who are deep in the field of thermoregulation. That's body temperature uh, regulation. Uh, deep in the field of specifically human body temperature regulation. Um, and as a consequence of that, it's it's not very reader friendly. No, but no. at the same time, we've had worse. Oh, for sure. It's it's not it's not it's not awful. It's or that god awful Facebook paper from last week <laughs> or two weeks ago. Correct me if I'm wrong, both of you, but more accurately, Ian. That means you're that wrong. If the average, <laughs> if if the relative humidity is a hundred percent, and the temperature is above thirty five degrees Celsius, that's bad news. That means that. Um... Assu- that that evaporative cooling is not going to be a, an effective mechanism for controlling right. your body temperature. It doesn't mean that there aren't other potential sure. means of doing it. But that's that's the equivalent of a 35 degree wet bulb temperature is 100 degree humidity and 35 degrees Celsius, which is what you're going to see like on the weathered network. Yep. And and they this this article does go into. I, th- I think the real point of this article isn't about you know the dangers of high humidity. It's really about how the the challenges and the perception of humid heat that is more intense than previously reported is basically what they're saying. They're saying that there's there's a lot of danger from high humidity in in high uh, temperature environments, and that what has been reported up till now isn't as severe as as it should have been. Like I would have thought that 100% humidity and 35 degrees Celsius was something that wasn't that rare. Like it was uncommon, but like wasn't impossible, but I, I, like it's essentially never been recorded, and that's weird to me. Well, isn't this whole paper about how it actually has been recorded? Well, and we it's just starting to be now. I think it's. I think that's the implication that it's starting to be recorded, and that's like a warning sign. Is it that it's starting to be recorded, or we didn't realize up until now how frequent it was? Uh, I was under the impression that it was getting more frequent because of global warming. Oh. For sure. Yeah, glo- yeah, global warming. They definitely bring in global warming of, or climate change as a serious concern that's that's mm-hmm. escalating this issue. I looked up sort of historical data for wet bulb temperatures to get sort of a sense of what we're normally dealing with. It comes from the U.S., comes from some military places, and it uh, it's temperatures recorded between 1969 and 1996 in Illinois. Okay, but is that just in Illinois? I believe this particular location was just in Illinois. Because they have very specific, like, elevation and then average pressure and stuff. Like, like it's got latitude longitude. So, yeah, it's one specific location. This is just to give a sense of, like, what you're averagely experiencing in terms of wet bulb temperatures. Because it's not like a... In Illinois. Yeah, but it's going to be fairly similar to, like, Toronto or anywhere. And, like, Illinois is pretty average, I think, for... (laughs) Illinois, average. 99 degrees Fahrenheit is, like, the middle of the extreme highs that you're going to get in Illinois. Which is pretty hot. Yeah, that's, like, upper 30s in Celsius. Sorry. It's 37.2. Yeah. Because yeah. technically, because technically, body temperature in Fahrenheit's like ninety eight point six six or something, something yeah, like yeah. that. So that's that's about as high as you're ever going. That's about as high as you'll ever see in Toronto. You're not seeing much higher than that. And as we know, Toronto is the epicenter of the world. Well, I'm from Toronto, so this is what I'm using. <laughs> so yes. But any if you're in any sort of major city in like other than the deep south of Texas or something or or outside of North America, then yeah, depending on where you're from, this is for like Central North America. This is about what you're going to see. You're not going to see much higher than than 99 degrees Fahrenheit or 37 degrees Celsius. For that time, the average wet bulb temperature of those days was 78 degrees Fahrenheit, which comes out to 25 and a half degrees Celsius. So it's unlikely that we've that I've ever experienced in my life 
temperature is much hotter than 25.5 yes. degrees Celsius in terms of a wet bulb temperature. Well, they do mention that in the paper that these are, the fact that these do happen, but they happen in very specific areas. Yeah. So this is not like if you're, if you're living in like New York or Toronto or Vancouver or whatever, you're probably not, you're not going to experience these. These are like very specific, like tropical locations with high humidity and high temperatures near the equator. For now. But this, that 35 degrees wet bulb is also like an ideal situation. So we're talking like you're in the shade, you're not doing work, you're not wearing clothes, you're <laughs> like have infinite access to water and you're healthy. 35 degrees Celsius is, is still bad news. Imagine then like an old folks home or very young kids mm. or right. Like imagine those situations where if you're getting even close to that. Or that poor woman who that Karen who went shopping and couldn't find any yeast. Ah, think of her. Someone think. for once think of her. <laughs> for once in your life. Think My of God, Karen. you selfish people. Our third paper today comes from The Guardian. Finnish basic income pilot improved well-being, study finds. But where did they finish it? That's the... what? Why, why do I keep inviting you back? <laughs> so Finland, if you believe it exists... <laughs> we're gonna, today we're going to talk about... Before you learn about wet bulbs, now you're going to learn about UBI. UBI is universal basic income. It's this idea that's being spread around quite a bit now. Due to no small part because of the Andrew Yang campaign down in the States, hashtag Yang Gang, <laughs> where everybody, everybody, doesn't matter who you are, I mean, of above a certain age, I believe, but everybody just gets a set amount of money every month for living. Yeah. Finland did a pilot study of this. They actually tried this where they gave a group of people, like, a, it was a planned experiment. It was 2,000 randomly selected unemployed people. So they actually did target unemployed people. It wasn't just... Randomly selected, but within the small group that they're also doing. Yes. A regular monthly income of 560 euros, which then they the Guardian very kindly uh, translates into another unit of currency I don't know. That's so nice of them. What did they translate it to? American? To pounds. Uh, no. Yeah, oh, to pounds. pounds. Oh, this is British. So that's helpful. It's the equivalent of $850 Canadian a month that oh. you would get. And it's not dependent on you getting a job. It's not, it's not dependent on anything. It's just you get this money. That's it. There's no, there's no, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's no caveats stipulations. Yeah. Yeah, there's no stipulations. It's just you get this money. Yeah. And in theory, a proper UBI would be everybody gets it. Doesn't matter if you work, doesn't matter if you're rich, doesn't matter if you're poor, doesn't matter if you have kids, doesn't matter. You just get this money. The theory being that this would help, like, get people out of poverty. It would help people be able to, like, spend more money and boost the economy because the money is going back in the hands of the people, in theory. UBI sounds like, I think it should be urinary bulb infection. <laughs> Will you get your mind away from bulbs? I first heard about UBI about a year ago. And now, and this could be confirmation bias, but now I feel like I'm seeing it all over the place. I feel like given where we are globally right now, it's kind of a big topic. The reason this article is both popular and published in the first place in The Guardian is because it is connected to the coronavirus. Yep. We're not going to avoid that, but we're kind of dancing around it because we're not going to go into the details of, like, the coronavirus or anything. Yeah. We've talked about this before. It's, um, it can easily be relevant without the coronavirus as well. But there, with the coronavirus, there is pushing for at least a temporary people need money to live, give them money. Yeah. What I, what I think is interesting is that, like, unsu at least unsurprisingly to me, their, one of their main results was that people were happier. Yeah. <laughs> people were, like, less stressed, I should say. They yeah. were less stressed out about their finances, uh, and they were more willing to, like, 
take risks to go for jobs that uh, like to, to drop the lower paying job and aim for a higher paying job. They were, or, or they were more likely to, um, if they were doing two jobs, drop one of the two jobs and, and pick up a hobby of some kind. So I, I thought that was kind of fascinating. Um, I'm pretty sure they found, however, that it doesn't actually impact the rate of unemployment. It did. It very slightly positively, or I guess negatively impacted, or... Positively, in fact, impacted employment, negatively impacted unemployment? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> it so there were more people there. getting employed. More people with job, yes. Yes, yeah. a mild positive effect on employment, particularly in certain categories, such as families with children, adding that participants also tended to score better on other measures of well-being. Wait, how long did the study run for? Two years. Okay, okay, that's that's a pretty good amount of time to yeah. make an assessment. Of it's not the hardest of takes to say we gave people money and they got happier. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's almost like if you remove the innate fear that you are going to have no money and thus die, somehow that does make people feel a little more secure. So this confirms a lot of the positives that are usually mentioned around UBI, which is that it lets people live without. It lets them pursue things they actually want it lets them go for jobs that they're going to be interested in instead of just ones that pay the bills yes because they've got a bit of that safety net which is like a positive thing you've got more people then taking risks potentially more people exploring what they're good at which can lead to some great things it's it gives you more time for yourself there's better working conditions and and oddly enough it actually encourages people to work because in a weird way a lot of people will get more out of their unemployment benefits than they will through actually working how do you mean? In certain situations. Like, you get more money from your unemployment than you're going to get from working, like, a minimum wage job at part-time hours. That's interesting. I didn't know that. So there's no... But if you get that part-time job, you're going to lose your unemployment, so you're actually better off staying on unemployment. So yes. is, would, UBI, would UBI replace unemployment? Not necessarily, but it would probably change it. I mean, the, the details of how exactly UBI would be implemented is different per country, yeah. Yeah. per region, per everywhere, so... This is also not true UBI because the amount, they say that the amount people were given is not enough to live on. Like 800 something a month, definitely not enough. That would, to live yeah, that on. wouldn't even yeah. cover my rent. No. Yeah. And so, in theory, a UBI, like, again, this is like, depends on the situation, depends on who gets, who puts this in and where, yeah. would be a living wage. So you could live off of it. Yes. Not necessarily well, but you could live. You wouldn't worry about people dying on the streets type of thing because you know they're getting enough money to live. It, yeah, it's an interesting thought. And I, uh, one of the common like counters to this kind of uh, system that you so often see is people saying, like, well, then what's the motivation for anyone to go out and get a job? Yeah. Um, I hate that. I really don't like that counter because I feel yeah. like it's um, the intrinsic motivation to get a, to get a job is, is almost built into us as, as human beings just out of our need to do something. Exactly. At least in my and experience, you know, sitting around the house doing nothing is, I, I can't do it. I cannot, I cannot, even at my laziest state, I <laughs> eventually need to get up and like go to the gym or do something. So feeling like you're a productive member of society, I feel like is actually kind of a, there's more of a drive for that outside of financial yeah. reasons. They even mentioned that in this article, a lot of people felt like they could in fact give back to their communities in ways that didn't even pay so they mention people were volunteering people were caring for family or community members 
there's there's this notion that the only way you can give back is by getting a paying job, which is not necessarily accurate. So this study, as I was kind of saying earlier, they got sidetracked by me. <laughs> this study does a pretty nice job of of confirming some of the positives, but they weren't like two really debatable positives. Like, yeah, people are happier and have better well being when they have more money. That's again, like, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, less less when they have more money and more when you remove the fear of not having money. That's true. And also this does suggest that the whole, well, if you give the money, they won't try to find work is a bit of a fallacy because employment went up, if anything. At the very least, didn't go down. Yeah. What this doesn't do is I'm not letting myself get sidetracked again. <laughs> what this doesn't do is, is counter the arguments against a UBI. One of the biggest ones being, well, where does this money come from? Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, that's not, I, I think that this study for what it was looking at, you know, this was a, a study about well-being and how people felt on a theoretical sort of a, a pseudo UBI, if you will. So it's not really looking at the logistics of it. It's looking at, you know, would this be beneficial for people? Which it, it was, but I don't feel like that was the controversial part of it. No. So, like, that's good to know. We we need more studies like this, but we need to go to, like, a next level where, okay, but now yeah. it's actually going to cost. Because UBIs are expensive. Like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of money. If you want to pay every person in Canada $2,000 a month, that's a lot of money. But it might be worth it because maybe that money goes back into the economy because people are spending now. And also, people aren't dying on the street and living in consistent fear and, you know. But that's the human angle. It's also like now it's less expensive to run the welfare programs and the healthcare programs because less people need them because they've got more money and they're healthier. Exactly. In theory. So it's compli- It's super complicated, which is why I like these pilot studies and I like more research being done so we can get scientific answers on them and not just emotion-based raising, shaking of fists. There's also concerns about automation threatening yeah. tons of, of current jobs and yes. how this could help with that because with, with this extra money, you could get you could afford the education you need to move on to jobs that are not being automated. Right. Cause that's one of the major hurdles of, mm-hmm. of like, well, yeah, sure. Automation's taken away the building car jobs, but why don't those people just become, go on to like the electrical engineer jobs? Duh. Like it's, well, <laughs> it's yeah, not that the easy. Coal, the coal miners are, they're just going to jump right into building solar panels. Yeah. Of yeah, course. Of no. course. Like, you need you need a cushion to to get yourself up to speed in order to be able to do that. Yeah, and it would give you opportunity then to potentially start your own business or start your own sort of hobby craft exactly. that you can that you've always sort of wanted to do but never had a chance to explore. And now you can, and that'd be great if we can have all these new like businesses and and opportunities coming up for people. Start where a like, business building the robots that build the cars and then yeah. sabotage them from the inside. <laughs> So that they don't build as good cars, and then they'll have to rehire the humans to build the cars again. There we go. We got it. We figured it out. Checkmate, Skynet. Siri, send tweet. I was thinking of making handcrafted wooden keepsakes, but hey, you do you. <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're not there yet. No. Oh, we're definitely not there. We but... are not there yet as a society, but I like that this is being talked about and brought up more. Because Absolutely. Oh, for starts... sure. And these kinds of pilot studies are incredibly important. Yeah, so shout out mm-hmm. to Finland. I mean, they're no Andorra, but, you know. <laughs> and that is all the time we have today. If you'd like to hear more about our wet bulbs, then you can check us out on Twitter at OurSciencePod. That's O-U-R SciencePod on Twitter. 
Be sure to like, comment, subscribe, and wherever you listen to make sure you don't miss any episodes. They come out every other Monday, but why remember things when you can just get little notifications on all your devices <laughs> to tell you that things are out? Automation! <laughs> and as always, we are part of Science Everywhere. They are an events and media company in Toronto. You can check them out at, at Where is Science on Twitter and Instagram, and also at Freestyle Social SE on Instagram, which runs weekly live events uh, every Tuesday at 7. But anyways, have you been our host? Yeah, uh, I was your host, Alan Collier, for Sarah and Ian. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.